So to just say, hey, this isn't hard because you're doing it wrong. This is hard because it is hard. This isn't scary because you're doing it wrong. This is scary because this is scary. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by dialoguing with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we're not always going to agree, but we won't argue. Our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in ways that build bridges, not barriers. Our guest today is Colby Martin. Colby is the co-founder of Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, California. Co-host of The Kate and Colby Show, he is a leading voice in the progressive Christian movement and author of numerous books such as Unclobber and The Shift. Colby, welcome to the show. What is up, Joey? I really like your tagline, community, not converts. Although, I would wager, if people did convert to a particular type of openness within themselves and toward other, you would not oppose. No, not at all. I'd be totally fine with it. There's some versions of conversion that even those of us on sort of the post-evangelical, however you describe it, in that world, we uh, yes, we are averse to that whole conversion. And obviously, I know how you mean it. But even as you said it, it struck me. I'm like, but still, we do kind of on some level, conversion's nice. I guess, yeah. it, just, I guess it just depends on what, <laughs> what we're asking you to move away from and move toward. I guess that's what it depends. We're about community, not converts. But if you convert to our way, we're cool with that. <laughs> That's true. But once you're in the community, we would ask you to convert. To convert, right. (laughs) That's a rabbit hole I'm not even going down. I can see see the hamster in your brain do a quick spin on the wheel, and you're like, oh, yeah. I'm going to leave it. No, let it it. go. Amazing. (laughs) What's up, man? It's good to meet you. It's good to meet you, too. I'm so glad we got to connect. Um, I'm really excited for our topic today and the things that we're going to be talking about. But before we dive into that, Colby, how did you get introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your background with spiritual stuff? I don't know that I got introduced to faith because it was just always part of our family growing up. So, you know, I often like to say uh, as we grow and our brains begin to develop and bring in data that we are told is true and factual, whether it's math, one plus one, whether colors, um, whatever it is, as our brain begins to develop a system of what is true about the world around us, if right alongside the math facts and the English language and the colors, if right alongside that are also religious ideas because the family goes to church and or because they pray and or because they talk about it at the dining room table, whatever it is, then the brain doesn't, our brains at that age, especially at that age, aren't able to distinguish between religious truths and math truths, for instance. So the brain just sort of takes it all as this is what is true about the world around me. So for someone like myself who grew up in a family that was in church every single week and sometimes multiple times a week, uh, yeah, faith or or, or the, the Christian tradition was just always a part of my world. So my brain never had a chance to consider that uh, it was anything other than 100% true. I, I don't feel like that answered your question, Joey, but that was my response. <laughs> no, definitely. And I think that actually rings true for a lot of people where you don't really have a start point. It was just always there. Just always there. Yeah. And I, for me, there's a, there's 
there's a way to interpret that reality in sort of a cynical way. You can be like, mm. oh man, I was just brainwashed from from when I was born. Okay, yes. If you need to spend some time describing it as being brainwashed and be upset about that, I totally get it. Yeah. And there's another way of looking at that, um, which is, for me, liberative. It brings some freedom. It brings, because I think a lot of people especially as they maybe begin the process of deconstructing or questioning some of their beliefs, they get tripped up in thinking, but this feels so much to me like this is God, this is true, this is this is what is real. Like how, why would I trust you and your questions over what I feel deep inside of me is God? And I wanna say those feelings you have that that is true of God are only there because they've been there as long as you can remember. Your brain has just categorized it as a type of truth. And that's not right or wrong. It just is. So you. So the the freedom for me is that you could practice taking some distance from that, being like, well, of course that would feel like it's a true and God because that's all I've ever known. So for me, there's a great freedom in there to be able to set those aside for a bit and play with it. And I take it based on some of the connotations that there has been a journey from where you started to where you find yourself now. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the system that I was born and raised and negatively brainwashed with, but positively just given because it was part of the family construct was um, regular, like, was it regular or ge- general? Some sort of Baptist. I, I forget what version of Baptist, whether it was uh, general Baptist or conservative Baptist, but it was a very conservative wing of the Baptist world. So I am a recovering Baptist and I spent... Um, you know, the first 12 years of my life in Baptist church and then the next 10 years in sort of evangelical world. So that is my, absolutely, that's my background. I know it well, got a degree, learned how to be a good Baptist minister. Uh, and that is not where I am now. Yes, Joey, that is correct. Some some things have happened along the way. Some things have happened, which we're going to dive into. And, and, and I think, you know, just diving into some of that, I understand your book a little bit more, but that is exactly what we're talking about today on the show. Your book entitled The Shift, um, the ideals within it. Uh, and the book is all about surviving and thriving after moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. And normally on the show, we sort of attempt our best to be unbiased, to let the listener make up their mind for themselves. I'm going to come right out and say, I loved this book. I have bought it for a couple friends. I highly recommend this book to our listeners. I feel a lot of them find themselves in this place. But like I said to you before we started, Colby, this book gave vernacular to emotions that I had. Um, But before we dive into it, Colby, obviously we're talking about a transition from one place to another in our spiritual thinking. Can you define for us what you mean when you say the word conservative and when you say progressive, when we apply it to Christianity? Yeah. Yeah, that is that is a a wise place to start, isn't it? To, you know, philosophy always asks us to define our terms before we start getting into conversations like this. And where I like to start is with this this value that I take with me in life, which is this. Labels are super helpful until they're not. So labels, there's a sense in which labels are really helpful because they give us some sense of 
parameter by which we understand where we are in relation to other people. So labels are helpful because they give us a sense of identity, a sense of uh, place, um, and they really help us. And then oftentimes there comes a point where the label then becomes restrictive. And yeah. suddenly we feel like we're we're boxed in, where the, the comfort of feeling like we were contained in the thing now feels oppressive and we feel like now it's squeezing the life out of us. And so we, we transcend the label and we push past the label. So why do I say that? Because for me, the term progressive Christian is how I describe my religious um, convictions these days. And yet I'm conscious of how that term is only so helpful. But I use them because they get at least close. They're at least close to, to, to trying to articulate what I am. So here's what, to respond to your question, here's for me how I sort of think about conservative and progressive, knowing that neither one of these terms are monolithic, monolithic which is to say there isn't one conservative Christian that everybody looks like and there isn't one progressive that everybody looks like. Sure, sure. It's a spectrum. We're talking about a spectrum. So you said earlier you're out in uh, New Jersey, right? So I'm on almost the opposite, complete opposite end of the country from you. I'm out in San Diego. It's similar in that way. What I found is the more you head east in our country, the more you can begin to predict particular cultural patterns, um, ways that people might talk, uh, you can just make some general assumptions that aren't altogether off base about what to expect of East Coast culture. And then as you move uh, to the best coast, I'm sorry, the West Coast, Freudian slip there, you can start to, again, make some assumptions and predictions about the particular characteristics of what West Coast looks like. Now, obviously, there are people within either one of those coasts that don't really fit the mold, but you get a general sense of a spectrum between East and West. This is similar to how I think about conservative and progressive. It is a spectrum and there's a lot of places in between. But as you move more towards conservative into the spectrum of Christianity, you begin to notice some particular identifying markers. And oftentimes this is characterized by how people, uh, what they believe about the Bible. Um, so the more conservative you get, the, the more intense your conviction that the Bible is exactly inspired and inerrant and infallible, right? All these I words that really make it sound like God quite literally wrote this Bible through the flesh meat puppets of humans. Uh, the more conservative you get on the end of the spectrum, the more you'll notice that. Uh, you might notice more things about um, the ways to think about God. Usually God's a, a male or use male pronouns. God's this all-powerful being that can do anything and control everything. Um, so, so that's, again, as you move towards the conservative end, you're going to find some identity markers. And then as you move towards what I call the progressive end, again, there's going to be some similar shared characteristic values and commitments. And in the book, I talk about four, uh, kind of four, um, what do you might call it? Like minimum benchmarks, where if you at least are these four if you hold these four convictions, then you're probably on the more progressive end of the spectrum. And one of those is you are open and affirming of LGBTQ people, which is to say you don't think being gay is a sin and you don't think same-sex relationships are an abomination to God. If you are if you're down with gay people, then you are probably on the more progressive end of the spectrum. Uh, number two, um, have a, a position of men and women that uh, that they are equal. So the more you move towards the conservative end, the more you might find this kind of 51, 49%. Yeah, sure, men and women are equal, but men are also a little bit better. Or men are the head of the house. So, so there's a little bit of like, well, there's a lot, the farther right you get. But that there's a sense of 
uh, non-equality there, but as you get more progressive, you see men and women as equal. Uh, third is a particular commitment to see uh, racism and systemic racism and um, try and put an end to things like white supremacy and systemic uh, racism. Again, if you hold those convictions, you're probably going to be on the more progressive end of the spectrum. And then the last thing that I'll say is as it relates to uh, faith and spirituality and religion, the more conservative you get, again, the root of cons conservative is to conserve, is to preserve. It's this assumption that we've already been shown all the truth, everything that's right and good, and now we just got to lock it down. So the goal is to believe the right things and lock that sucker down and don't move. Just spend the rest of your life protecting and preserving those beliefs. The more progressive you get, Joey, the more you start to relax in those convictions and realize maybe the maybe the thing isn't getting the right beliefs that somebody figured out 2,000 years ago and just lock it down. Maybe there's a sense of curiosity and wonder and growth and transformation. And these are all part of what it means to have faith. And maybe these aren't to be feared, but maybe they're good. Now, Colby, many Christians look around at the world, obviously in 2020, and they they sort of wonder what happened to their faith. You know, this thing that once could solve everything now seems like it's causing more questions than it's providing answers. Things like love, race, gender, equality, all things that you mentioned uh, on more of the progressive end of the spectrum, they once meant one thing, but now they're sort of being redefined as something else. Can you unpack that feeling a little bit? Yeah, the, the feeling is, I think... There's two main feelings there. There's fear is the first feeling. And I think there's sadness. Mm. Actually, I'm going to add a third. Make it a trinity. Loneliness. There's fear, there's sadness, and there's loneliness. And the reason why I say that is because when you are, like I was, born and raised and well-established in a more conservative from, again, my context, conservative, evangelical Christian framework. You are told, whether this is explicitly or implicitly, you are told that the point in life is to believe the right things so that when your short, relatively meaningless life on earth is over, then you get permitted access into heaven so you can have eternal life with God. So really, this is just like a big waiting room for the, the, the main party. And the only way to get into the party is to have the correct ideas floating around between your ear holes. Now, if that is what you have developed deep convictions around, again, that the most important thing, the thing that matters most is believing the right things, then when you start to question those beliefs, when you start to ask questions such as, man, I don't know, is God really in control? Is God really all that powerful? When you start asking questions like, man, I don't know, does the Bible really, is it really infallible? Is it really inerrant? Because there seems to be a lot of contradictions uh, in there. Is it is it really reliable? When you start asking questions like, I don't know, did, did Jesus really do miracles? Like, people don't come back from the dead. We know this, right? When you start asking these questions, 
now you are fundamentally messing with the very foundation of what you were told the point of life is, which is believe the right things. Your entire standing with God evidently is dependent upon believing the right things. And so if you mess with that, you're now messing with your standing with God, which puts into question and threat your eternal existence. That is scary. <laughs> no matter how, like that, that process, eventually, eventually I can testify, uh, it becomes less scary and it becomes freeing. But in the very beginning, to question those fundamental beliefs is so scary. Um, because again, your standing with God depends on it. But then also super sad because you have, oftentimes what happens is people hit this point where they realize, oh man, I've just given X many years of my life to these ideas, mm. to this system, to this church, to this religion, to this ministry, to this organization. Um, and now I don't really buy into it. And there's this, there's this pit in the stomach of, oh, what have I done? I can't believe I used to think like that, or I can't believe I used to treat people like that. I remember in the early stages of my shift, having real um, just feelings of guilt and embarrassment for how I used to treat people in, in, those, in those days of my kind of hyper-saved, having to save everybody from going to hell. So there's some sadness there, but then the third thing is loneliness because when you build your, oftentimes what happens is people build their entire social network within the context of their church or maybe their family. If their family all shares these conservative religious convictions, then there's this tight familial connection. And so then when someone begins to go outside of that, or move towards more progressive end of the spectrum, uh, that community uh, dissipates quickly. And suddenly you feel very alone. You don't have your friends, you don't have your social network. You, sometimes you don't have your family. And that's really why I wrote the book, Joey, was because that, that shift from leaving your conservative world and moving towards something more progressive is full of uh, pain, fear, sadness, loneliness, and I wanted to normalize that for people because what I found in my years of doing this work now is that nobody really escapes those feelings. You, you don't get to do the shift without those feelings. And so to just say, hey, this isn't hard because you're doing it wrong. This is hard because it is hard. This isn't scary because you're doing it wrong. This is scary because this is scary. And just to normalize that for people. Um, was really why I wanted to write this book. And then the survival guide aspect of it is, and so now that you are right where you're supposed to be, here's a few things to, to help along the way, or here's a few things to look out for from people who have traversed this territory before you. And if this helps you be able to navigate your family or navigate your self-doubt or navigate these theological questions that suddenly seem really weird to you, um, then yeah, that's what the shift is for. And you touch on this a couple times without the book and, and even within our conversation that that certainty sort of plays this massive role, not only in our upbringing, but our spiritual development, our familial stability, all of it plays into certainty. But then when we have this shift, we sort of move from that foundation of certainty. What does it look like when we move from one expression to the next when it comes to certainty? You know, I at least personally... It was always, you know, that, you know, that, you know, and now I, I know way less, not because I'm smarter, but because I feel like that feels more right. Um, you know, what do we do with that feeling of uncertainty? Yeah. 
Yeah, certainty is a fascinating beast. In many ways, uh, we can attribute this sort of lowercase g god of certainty to the Enlightenment, to the project of modernity, where the sense was is we as humans we can become so smart we can we can gain insight and truth about all there is to know and so intellectual uh truth became our god and mm. certainty became our goal um and that and that kind of made its way into christianity for sure for sure especially protestantism especially evangelicalism where we have now become convinced and i don't know the roots of this joey this might be the this might be what i spend book five or six sort of chasing down i don't know the roots of this but somewhere along the way we became convinced that the thing that god cares about most is what we believe and i think when i think if people were to just stop and meditate on that for a little bit they might be surprised at how absurd it begins to sound and feel that the god of the entire cosmos the god of who, who supposedly is behind everything in everything uh that that god when god thinks about what is the most important thing to me that the answer to that is what humans think and believe uh, you know i have four sons and never once in my now 15 years of parenting have I had the thought, you know what is, matters most to me is that my sons uh, have the right answers about me and that they know who I am and they know what I think and how I feel. Like, that's just not really what I care about most. And then I, I, look at, um, I look at the picture of Jesus as presented in the Gospels. And I think, here's a guy who, if we're going to talk about certainty, he did not seem all that concerned about his followers being certain about ideas and beliefs so if, if the most important thing to god is what we believe between, between our ears and if we believe that jesus is the exact representation of god as the book of hebrews say and some people even say jesus is god in the flesh then if the most important thing to god is what we believe then you should certainly see that reflected in jesus the most important thing to jesus therefore ought to be getting people to have the correct beliefs because this must be the only thing that matters so that we can get into eternal life and yet when you look at jesus joey he does not uh, present himself as someone who is all that interested in getting people to have the correct beliefs. In fact, he uses parables to teach more than any other format. And parables are by their nature sort of meant to be confusing, meant to like force you to work through things and wrestle with things, not to get clarity, not to get certainty. Uh, this was not what Jesus cared about. So, Right. How many times did the disciples come back and be like, uh, excuse me, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> right. Super, and yet we have called Jesus a good teacher. Well, Yes, good teacher in one sense, but if the point is to get the right beliefs so that when you die, you go to heaven, then we need to be honest, and Jesus was not a good teacher. He was terrible. You know, he's like the the, the, the SAT prep teacher who, who, who you know, just kind of helps their students uh, just guess on the test. Well, I don't know. Could be. Could be A. Could be B. What do you think? Could be C. Why don't you go into a closet and think about it for a bit? That was not a good teacher. The good teacher in that context gets the students with the right information so they can pass the test. Okay, so certainty. We have been convinced that God cares most about what we believe. And then once you have the right belief, the, now our faith is evaluated based on how certain you are in that. And if you begin to question that, 
uh, or, or have some doubts around it, if your quote-unquote certainty is um, shaken in any way, we've been told that's a sign of weak faith. We've been told that's indicative of a faith that is failing us. And I, as I talk, you know, the first couple chapters in the book, I say this is, this cannot be how we think about faith. Faith is not about getting the right beliefs. Faith is about an openness. Faith is about a posture. Faith is about a trust, a posture of trust that says, I think out there there is a light and I'm just going to be open to constantly adjusting and turning toward it and come what may. For me, this is a much more indicative of faith than the idea of being certain. Now, at least in my experience with conservative Christianity, the certainty came from the book that we read. It came from the Bible. Uh, and I think some people may listen to the conversation we're having and may incorrectly assume that what you're describing rejects the Bible, sort of baby with the bathwater scenario. But if I hear you correctly, we're more rejecting the framework that we first experienced the book in. Is that right? I think that's a good way to say it. Um, I, I just had someone message me on Facebook. I didn't know this person. But the message just said, Colby, do you believe in the Bible? And I think I knew what they were asking. And also, I have no idea what they're asking. Like, what what does that mean to believe in the Bible? Like, I have one sitting on my desk right here. I I clearly believe that exists. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a document that's existed for a couple thousand years now. So, sh sure, in one sense, I, I believe that the Bible exists. We're not really questioning that. But that's obviously not what they were asking. I think what they were asking is the same way I might have asked it from ages 14 through 27 or whatever was do you believe my interpretive framework and my assumptions and my hermeneutic about the bible do you believe my conclusions about the bible are what the bible conclude uh and now once we clarify what the question is we can have a little more interesting in-depth and uh and potentially um cantankerous conversation so yes listener joey is correct it, it does in some ways sound like suddenly colby is abandoning the bible but like you said joey what i'm abandoning is just one particular way that one sliver of the christian heritage has decided um what the bible is and in the book i have a whole chapter dedicated to the bible where I talk about these three I words that I mentioned a minute ago, um, inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And I used to wholeheartedly defend the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, which are fancy ways of saying the Bible's perfect and has no error, and the Bible will not lead you astray if you follow it. And now I simply cannot in good conscience say that either one of those hold, uh, hold up at all to scrutiny. Uh, but the inspired piece is still something I hold on to. Although I might I might uh, define inspiration a little bit differently now than I than I used to, um, but I still I, Joey I love the Bible I do I love it I just started this last week a small group at my church on the parables and I'm excited to to dive into the parables of Jesus um, I find this a fascinating collection of stories and letters and poems and a history of people that have been wrestling with some of the deepest questions of what it means to be alive 
they've been wrestling for you know three thousand years and trying to trying to get insights into what the divine is who the divine is how we relate to the divine how we relate to each other how we relate to ourselves this is hard fought hard earned wisdom that has been preserved for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and for me that's not nothing like that that tells me that there's something in here that uh, transcends culture transcends time um and is and is deeply and profoundly true on some real um real deep levels so yeah but yes it is no longer i no longer think the same things about the bible that i used to that's certainly true Now, you had mentioned this just before, the idea of church. Uh, I think 2020 is probably showing us that being present in a church isn't always necessary. Uh, But I also think that for a lot of people, this has been felt for a long time, that I don't need to be at church. When you do have your shift, Colby, when you do progress in your faith, what role does church play, seeing as many people have a love-hate relationship with this institution that held services and programs and and was a, a defining part of their lives. Yeah, this this is a complicated aspect of the shift. Because um, to just pick up on where you just left off, for many people, when they begin their shift... And again, describing the shift as that movement away from something more conservative and towards something more progressive. Oftentimes, the catalyst for the shift is a either a rejection by a church or a sense that I no longer fit in this church. I don't belong here anymore. And that can be that can be really painful. The church can be a incredible source of healing and wisdom and insight and at the same time it can be one of the most um, painful places and so the, the 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 church trauma the wounding that many people endure is real and part of uh, part of what I hope to do in the book is to again tell people like yeah you've been wounded by the church you've been wounded by religion I'm sorry that's real I'm here to tell you that that is real and that is wrong so for many people, uh, what I've discovered is that they leave the church for really good reasons, whether it was spiritual abuse or religious trauma or some sort of oppressive theological system or maybe because they identify as LGBTQ and their church rejected them, whatever it is, they leave the church for very good reasons. And some never return. And I, it's hard for me to really say anything other than, yeah, that makes sense. Of course you would. And then others find their way back. And this is, so my wife and I started our church, Sojourn Grace Collective, almost seven years ago. And I would say this is one of our, our primary demographics, are people who have left the conservative church world and yet are still looking for some sort of touch point to spirituality, some sort of framework for practicing spiritual practices, and even more so, uh, some sort of safe community. And so they find our church because our website and our SEO tends to tell them this is a safe place for you. And what we find, Joey, is that people experience by being a part of our church, which is um, strives to be non-judgmental, strives to be very open and inclusive, strives to be 
air on love and grace and compassion. What people experience is they actually experience a lot of uh, healing from their church trauma by being back in church, mm. which I think might be counterintuitive for some people. But if you think about it like this, I don't know if you've done any therapy, but I've done a lot of therapy in the last couple of years. And part of why talk therapy works is because you're in the uh, space with your therapist where it's safe and non-judgmental. They're there just to listen and to reflect back to you and, and just sort of be this loving presence. And part of what happens is you, you retell stories of trauma, you retell stories of past suffering and your brain, which has been wired to uh, have these certain emotional responses to it, like fear, fight, flight, you know, have these responses to it. When you can retell those stories in a safe and loving environment, your brain gets to rewire to new emotional connections so that suddenly the same triggers don't impact you the same way. Now, why do I say that? Because then I think the church uh, can be a similar place of healing where people who might have previously been triggered by whether it's just a man standing up in front of a church reading from the Bible. That's super triggering to a lot of people for really good reasons, because maybe they've heard sermons that tell them if they're a woman, they need to be obedient to men. Or if they're gay, then they are doomed for hell. Like that's some painful stuff right there. So then to just have any man stand up and read from the Bible is just bringing, you know, the brain is like, get out of here, get out of here. This is not safe for you. You need to flee. But when it's in a loving, safe, non-judgmental space and the pastor is suddenly saying, you are fully loved just as you are. You know that, right? Like you are a loved child of God. You don't need to do a damn thing. You don't need to believe anything. You don't need to do anything. You are just, you belong in the family of God. To have that happen in the same context where they experienced the, the trauma, that's how, he, that's how healing starts to happen. So that's part of why I'm so committed to this church you know, that Kate and I started is to, is to try and be a place of providing this wholeness and this healing for people who um, really have all good reasons to leave the church and yet maybe aren't fully prepared to do so yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and something you had touched on before, uh, but also is a is a, a you know a connecting thread through all of this is is that a lot of the first introductions of faith for a lot of people is family, and so it's a safe place, it's a safe narrative, uh, it's a sense of security, even even that you go to church together as a family. Family sort of defines a lot of your spirituality. What happens then when you shift and your family doesn't? That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Great answer. I mean, that's what happens is you you just feel crappy for a while. Um, because of course you would. Because it's not just... We're not just talking about someone in the family becoming a, 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 a Lakers fan when the rest of the family is a trailblazers we're not just talking about changing allegiances for sports teams we're not just saying um although i was gonna say we're not just changing political allegiances although more and more it feels like that is just as scary for family members but no it goes way deeper than that because if we go back to what i said earlier where the most important if and again i reject this but if the most important thing to god is that you believe the right thing then to begin to walk away from some of those beliefs or change them suddenly in your family's mind, you are, you're, you're playing with very real eternal fire. And so there's, there's a lot of concern for 
the people in family systems who quote unquote leave the faith because um, they fear they fear for their soul uh so yeah so when people when when they start to go through their shift their family can oftentimes react very poorly um because they're they're afraid and often other times it's not just fear but it's their own insecurity they're projecting so a lot of conservative christians look they're they're reasonable thoughtful people 100 percent and yet they have been trained to stuff and repress and push down their questions and their doubts. Um, and so then when someone in the family stops pushing those away and stops repressing them and actually entertains them and explores them and maybe even says, yeah, yeah, there's some actually there's some good reasons to not believe that the Bible or that the earth was created in six literal days. Um, the freedom that some people might have to lay that belief down suddenly pushes up against the insecurity of other people in the family who might, you know, inside be like, hey, we've worked really hard to ignore that. We've worked really hard to not give any credence to that. And now here you are uh, saying that you no longer believe that. Well, that that's not only scary for me, but it really pushes up against my, I wish I, I, wish I could question that, but I can't. And so then they sort of end up pushing their family members away out of their own sense of insecurity. So one of the chapters in the book, and in fact, when I was writing the book and I would tell people, yeah, it's a, it's like a, it's like a survival guide for becoming a progressive Christian. There was this desperation from people. Oh, are you going to talk about what to do with your more conservative friends and family? And the lane that I chose, cause I could have gone a couple different ways with that, but the lane that I tried to go in that specific dynamic was this. I believe that there is, in the gospel stories, in how Jesus models his relationship with the disciples, I believe there is what I call divine permission to create new boundaries um, between you and your family if if your family is not accepting your, um, if they're not accepting of your new convictions anymore. You have divine permission to, to, you know, Jesus told his disciples to shake the dust off your feet and move on. Um, we have permission to say to our, our parents, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles who are constantly hounding us or making us, trying to shame us or guilt us into coming back into the fold or just saying really harsh judgmental things. We have, you have permission, dear listener, to say, nope, I'm not going to let you talk to me like that anymore. I'm not going to let you treat me like that anymore. And if you can't respect me anymore, then maybe we just need to not communicate. Now, look, that's not easy. I'm not saying that's, nobody should feel good about that. But what I'm saying is we've been, we've been sold this idea within Christianity that the, 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 the best thing to do is to always try and be reconcilers and bridge builders. And you just always have to, basically, you just have to be a doormat for people. No, you don't have to be a freaking doormat for people. You can love yourself. You are a loved child of God. So love yourself like one. You can love yourself, which means sometimes protecting yourself from family members who, who will not accept you. Uh, you don't need to keep putting yourself into that position. So Colby, as we close, how does the church, the big C church, move together with conservatives, progressives, all different people on the spectrum approaching faith in Jesus? You know, how do we come together to be better? I don't know. I don't know. Um, this isn't obviously an understatement, 
Um, but we are currently very deeply divided. And the division run, runs not just along these religious, conservative, progressive lines, but obviously the, the political lines seem to be finding their way in as well. And we, we're just, we're really freaking divided, man. And that terrifies me. Um, I would say not too many things in life give me existential dread. But this does when I think about the trajectory. I'm just speaking of our country, the trajectory of people who grow up in, you know, we use the term bubble. That's fine. It's a little cliche at this point, but who grow up in one bubble and they're really just given one version of reality, one set of facts. Like I remember when uh, I think when Trump first became president and one of the, the one of his staff members said something about alternative facts. And at the time we just sort of scoffed like what an absurd statement to make. There's no such thing as alternative facts. Well, actually, that might be a really apropos term. We, we do. We have a world right now with different facts. Uh, and that's scary where where kids grow up um, really being just convinced that their way of seeing things is the only and the and the right way. And if anyone sees differently, they are their enemy. We have I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, but Trump is a professional enemy maker. He's convinced that everyone is his enemy. And he's able to convince others that they are also their enemies. And now we are, we, we just we're in this time where we our perception is that there are enemies everywhere. And if someone thinks differently than us, then that makes them our enemy, which then creates this convenient justification for hatred to bubble up inside of us, that we can now hate people without our normal moral consciences sort of putting limitations on it because under normal conditions we sort of re repel against hate we don't we don't hate doesn't make us feel good it doesn't have a whole lot of uh, um, positive value so we don't typically like to hate but if it's directed at our enemy or who we think is our enemy yeah hate is suddenly permitted to fester our souls or our, our conscience is unbothered by it but hate's only purpose is destruction there's no other there's no other goal for hate other than to destroy everything. The only thing that I cling to in this is that I think we have to we have to try and remember that all humans are love children of God. And I know that that's a particular theological conviction that maybe it's easier to hold on to in the progressive end of the spectrum. So I think progressives have an advantage, whereas conservatives might find themselves in the camp of, no, all people are fallen and sinful and hated by God. Okay, well, that does make it a little bit complicated. But to the extent that all people can at least find that humans are worthy of dignity and honor and respect and love, then maybe, just maybe, we can push past our fear of people thinking differently, our insecurity of other ideas, and maybe we can, we can find a way to build some semblance of relationship just on the fact that, oh, you're, you're a human just like me. You have blood running through your veins and air in your lungs, 
which qualifies you to be in the family of God just as much as it does me. So since we're all part of the great divine family, maybe we can start treating each other with a little more kindness and compassion and grace. And I don't know, maybe that'll help. But I still kind of go back to my first response, Joey, which was, I don't know. It's the right question to ask. It's absolutely the right question to ask. Um, it's just a really hard one to respond to right now. So all I can do, I guess, is practice in my own way. Practice in my own way to seek understanding of those that I, uh, I don't understand. Because, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says understanding leads to compassion and compassion leads to love. So how do I love people that are different? How do I love people that seem to be my enemies? Well, I, I got to understand them. I got to understand them. Um, if I can understand where they came from, why they are the way they are, how, how it is that they think, it doesn't mean I have to agree with them, but it means it doesn't mean I can move the next click to compassion. And once you have compassion in your heart, then you can then you can love. Brene Brown says it's hard to hate people up close. And if we don't understand people, then we're never going to move to love. So how do you understand you get close? I don't know, man. You can see me grasping for something because I want there to be a good answer to this. I just don't know. No, and I think that makes more sense um, because the answer could change from today to tomorrow. Um, but I think the approach that you're mentioning actually is a great first step. And I think it's a necessary step, at least for the church. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And, and thanks so much for making time to be on the show. Where can people connect with you to hear more about the book? How can they find you online? Yeah. Thanks for the invite, Joey. It's been a pleasure to, uh, to meet you and be a part of what you're doing here. I'm glad you're doing it. It's good. It's good work that you're doing. So thank you. Um, Fortunately, my parents gave me a name that isn't super common, so you really could just Google Colby Martin, and I think I most of the first Google page. But my website is colbymartinonline.com, and that'll take you to both my books. That'll take you to my TED Talk. That'll take you to um, – I uh, right now I'm working on a, um, a weekly writing series on hatred called Hatred is Lethal, and I've been exploring this idea of hatred. Uh, and, and I'm starting to turn the corner now into once we've identified what hatred is, how it manifests, once I have named my own hatred in my own heart, I have a whole post about I have to admit that I have hated Trump for four years. I'm not proud of it, but I have to name it. Now that I've named it, I can begin to root it out. So now I'm working on um, how do you eliminate hate from your heart? I think this is really important. And so I write about that on my Substack page. Uh, and then on Facebook on Wednesdays, I go live and I talk about it every uh, every Wednesday at 11 on Facebook. So find me on Instagram, find me on Facebook. I'm out there. I'm easy. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at dismantlepod or send us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Mm-hmm.